This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at MedEdMedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the short code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to The Short Coat, a podcast of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today on today's episode are some magical creatures of medical education. Say hello to MD PhD student Miranda Skeen. Hello, everybody. Well, hi there, M3 Jenna Mullins. Hello. Salutations, M3 Allison Klimesh. Hi. And uh, if you threw the application of a sixth sense, you sense that there were more people here. Well, you're officially psychic. We're joined today by Long Island gastroenterologist Ian Storch, DO, host of the podcast DO or Do Not. Hello, Dr. Storch. Hi. Good to be here. Thank you so much for having us today, David. You're so and welcome. The rest of the group. And he's brought two of his med student friends with him. Courtney Merlot is a second-year DO student at Michigan State University. Hi, Courtney. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Of course. And Amir Kiabani is a third-year DO student at Alabama College of Osteopathic Medicine. Welcome, Amir. Thank you for having us. Lovely to see all your beautiful faces. Aww. Aww. I'm glad you folks in the DO world have joined us because a while back at the end of August... We discussed a listener question that you could have helped us with. So let's hear the start of that conversation, and then we'll talk. We have a listener question. Uh, he says, I wanted to ask whether becoming a DO hinders chances in competitive specialties such as orthopedics or neurosurgery. What do you guys think? I think it depends on the program because there are... The residency program, the, the specific residency yes. program you're trying to yes. match in I can't at a talk. specific institution. Correct. Right. Mm -hmm. I can't speak to ortho or neurosurge, but with emergency medicine, I've seen it where DOs have better chances at different programs. And it's more so researching programs to know, are they DO friendly or not? And more and more programs are DO friendly because there's not that much difference between MDs and DOs as we progress. Yeah, in terms of skills and, mm -hmm. and Especially competence. Everyone's taking the USMLE now too. Right. Like a lot of DO, I think DOs take- They take Comlex and USMLE, but they don't have to take USMLE if yeah. they don't want to, but some programs won't accept them if they don't take USMLE. Oh. Mm -hmm. So it's additional work if you go into DO because it's more tests and sometimes you might have a, a harder time getting into specific programs, but it, I, I haven't heard from anyone that's like, oh, if I'm DO, I can't go into orthopedics. So we probably said a lot of things about that, about the topic, but I'm thinking what it amounted to is that DOs and MDs are held to the same standards in the curriculum and the accreditation part of being in med school. So you, so you shouldn't worry about your plans for a specialty if, you, if you're a DO or an MD. Programs might have been resistant to hiring DOs as residents, but they are certainly becoming less so. And other bits of DO positive but only mildly informed speculation on the topic, as is our usual way. So what did you think of that discussion, Dr. Storch? Yeah, so again, Dave and group and crew, thank you so much for having us to start. But I guess I'm going to start a little bit with just old doctor mentorship advice that I, you know, I'm a professor at 
the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Hofstra School of Medicine. So I, I do have positions at both an MD and a DO institution, which obviously we're going to talk about both of those. But the question itself from the listener, I would give advice to the listener to start, is how difficult is it to get into orthopedics and neurosurgery? Now, it may be that that student just had a great experience in orthopedics or neurosurgery, or their dad is a neurosurgeon or something along those lines, but it also may be that they went on Medscape and looked at highest salaries for physicians and noticed that neurosurgery is number one and orthopedics is number two. So my general advice for pre-medical students and I think that I love to hear from the rest of the crew on this, but I think they'll echo what I say is that medicine is an excellent career. Medicine, I think one of the group pointed out during that specific podcast that you're probably not going to be poor as a physician and that's great. But if you want to make a lot of money, probably should go into finance. You know, medicine <laughs> is a lot of work. It's a lot of time. There are certainly specialties that that are very well compensated but I don't think going into medicine because you want to make a lot of money is a good decision. That's number one. Number two is, you know, I would rephrase the question to, if you go to an osteopathic school, can you get into a competitive specialty or can you do different specialties? We're going to delve into that a little bit in the discussion, but I felt it important to start off by just saying, don't go into medicine because it's lucrative. It's a bad investment for that reason. Yeah. We definitely agree with you on that. We've talked many times about it's a, such a long, slow process to become a physician, you know, a fully fledged attending physician like yourself and to start making actual money that it's not worth really thinking. I mean, you could do that much faster. At a specialty level, trying to wedge yourself into a specialty that isn't actually making you happy isn't going to do anything for you either, because it's like you can go in with like, I really want to be a neurosurgeon. And then you it turns out you don't like neurosurgery, but now you've got this vision of yourself. It's just going to make you upset because you've now forced yourself into a career that doesn't fit you. Like bad jeans. Yeah. <laughs> The, jeans the, the pants, not jeans the nucleic you. acid. I just heard myself. Thank <laughs> you. Oh, we got it. We got it. Oh, I agree. gosh. Oh, gosh. That's going to be taken out of context at some point in the future. Yeah, do what you love. Do what you love. Do, do things for love, not money. That's that's generally good advice. Mm -hmm. If you and, get love and money, it's it's all good all around. To the, to the core question, you know, just looking at the list of people that you've interviewed on the Do or Do Not podcast, it shows that we were broadly correct. You can do anything in medicine with a DO or an MD. That's not really a limiting factor. You've had interviews with a pathologist, a radiologist, a neurologist, a transplant fellow, as well as primary care providers like family doctors and geriatricians. And yourself, you're Dr. Storch, you're a gastroenterologist, so plenty of opportunities to subspecialize. Exactly. We talk a lot about primary care. You know, I, I think that was one of the things that you brought up on the podcast. And we're going to, again, we're going to talk about osteopathic medicine, which is focused on training primary care physicians. And I think sometimes, and again, I am a specialist, but I'm an internal medicine doc. I'm board certified. I'm very proud of my internal medicine training. And I think primary care is the most important part of medicine. It's not even what I think. That's a fact. 
There is a physician shortage in the United States. That's a fact. It's going to get worse as the population gets older. That's a fact. But we don't need 5 million ophthalmologists. Again, I like ophthalmologists. I have a lot of friends that are ophthalmologists, but we don't need 5,000 ophthalmologists. The most important thing, actually, for our country and the world is to train primary care docs. So although, again, a decent percentage of osteopathic physicians, many doctors go to osteopathic school to pursue primary care because that is the mission statement of a lot of schools. And... That's a good thing. You know, so I think sometimes we look at schools and we say, you know, how many orthopedists are there? That That's not really a way to judge a school. I think that the question is, can an osteopath go into subspecialty? Basically, are you limiting yourself? Are you not going to be able to go into specialty? The answer is you absolutely can do anything that you want out of osteopathic school the same way that you could out of an MD or an allopathic school. And that's what we're trying to show with our podcast. So if I may ask, if you have basically the same areas of subspecialization going from MD or DO, like what are the differences between those degrees? Like from an, like, imagine I'm, talk to me like I'm five and explain like what in your uh, mind are the differences in sort of training and DO versus MD schools? Such a curious five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> like like a five-year-old with some familiarity with the med school curriculum. <laughs> Uh, research and Courtney, do you want me to take this one? Go for it. So the, there really isn't a difference between the curriculums. We both learn the STEM, you know, the biology, the microbiome. We learn the pharmacology. If we talk to each other and try to diagnose the patient, we'll pretty much come to the same differential diagnosis. But the addition of our OPP class and our osteopathic manipulation techniques. We go to lab at least twice a week for my school. I don't know about Courtney and I don't know about Dr. Storch's experience in his school, but at least in my school, we go to lab at least twice a week, three hours a day, and we learn how to diagnose what we call somatic dysfunction. And we believe that a lot of diseases come from these somatic dysfunctions. So in addition to what we learn, like you guys, pharmacology and everything, we do learn, you know, to kind of microanalyze little changes in muscles and tissue and, you know, your bones, alignment and all that. Courtney, Dr. Storch, want to add anything? Sure. I think the OMT component is a really important component. I think another thing that we touch on in osteopathic school is the way we approach diagnosis. We are taught to really focus on the whole person, the whole story, everything that they come in with leading up to where they are now their whole life. And we're focusing on more just than just the symptoms that they come in with. Our, actually, our test questions are written in the same format for our board exams with the emphasis on treating the person as a whole and looking at the bigger picture rather than just immediately diagnosis and treatment. So this is just a foundational difference between the two styles of medicine that I think we're really proud of in osteopathic medicine. Yeah, and I have to say that approach makes a lot of sense to me as a patient because I've been in situations where I've walked into an exam room and I think been immediately diagnosed without a heck of a lot of discussion about what I was actually there for. That's just been my gut feeling. Nobody's ever said, like, nobody's ever actually opened the door and said, You have gout. Right. Get out of my office. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a kind of a subtle thing that I think patients actually do sort of pick up on. Mm -hmm. And so uh, 
let's talk about that. Let's talk about what those questions are that you lead with when you're first seeing a patient. You know, what's my experience like as a patient of a of a DO? I think that's an interesting question. We talked a little bit about Ryan Gray earlier, who has some great pre-medical podcasts. And, and he sometimes sort of alludes to the fact that, that he's not a big believer in the osteopathic holistic approach. But mm-hmm. again, my medical school training is osteopathic. The ACGME merger obviously has brought all the residency programs under one roof. But you know, when I trained, there was a choice whether to do an osteopathic or an allopathic MD training. And I actually did all of my postgraduate training, internal medicine, a chief residency, and a gastroenterology fellowship, you know, ultimately at University of Miami at allopathic institutions. And I think that the things that set me apart and my other osteopathic colleagues apart were number one, just being open-minded to everything that the patient is saying and not just focusing on medicines and surgeries that we could offer them. And I think we just are a little more open to engaging with the patient and and talking to the patient and looking at them as sort of a, a mind, body, spirit combination. And that's not to say that MDs don't necessarily do that or that, that, that I have friends that are the most empathic people that I know that are MDs, but I, I think this is something that is really stressed in osteopathic school and in the curriculum. Yeah. But I, guess I, I have a question too. Sure. So yeah, like you said, like, I guess it seems like this is just a philosophy that's kind of emphasized by DO schools. Like it's in most of their, I don't know, whatever you call it, their code of ethics or whatever. But you also said that the training is more or less like the same. So do you think it's more of an of a difference in like the people that are attracted to those programs are people that would naturally put emphasis on the whole person anyway? Or is it more of like the outlook of these programs kind of shapes how you're taught to interview? Yes. I mean, I think that's an amazing question. I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I think it's probably a little bit of both people that are drawn to osteopathic medicine, maybe they're not the person that's asking that question, can you become a neurosurgeon or orthopedist? They're really people that say, look, I wanna be a doctor and I wanna treat the whole person and I wanna treat people more as just a, a gallbladder or a pancreas, you know? So I think there is that to it, but again, that emphasis is definitely stressed in medical school. So I think that for the other people that maybe didn't come with that, they get it when they leave. This is really fascinating. Yeah, just because it really does seem to be a difference in philosophy as opposed to really anything else, which is not really what I expected coming into this discussion today. So I think that's really interesting. I was just going to say, do you guys mind if I jump in with a quick story that I have? Kind of an example of this. Please. So my first experience working with a osteopathic family medicine physician was I was in clinic and we had this woman come in and she was an elderly patient who just lost lost her spouse a couple months ago and she had complaints of tiredness, fatigue, aches and pains and before we enter the room the physician pulls me aside and he tells me you know her story about losing her spouse and how she's had trouble coping over the next couple months and he said today we're just going to go in and we're going to talk to her and we're going to listen because she doesn't have money, family connections left and 
for her, her healing that she needs is not medication. It's time and it's a listening ear. So we, we went in, we sat down, we talked with her, we listened. And at the end, she left in much better spirits. And it really was the true root of her problem. And I think that really embodies the teachings that we have in osteopathic medicine, the real focus we have on holistic medicine. And to add to that, I wanted to speak on the question about what kind of people are drawn to apply to osteopathic medicine. When I started thinking about medical school, I wasn't pre-med. I wasn't the traditional guy. I was actually a chemist. I was kind of in Miranda's shoes. I was, you know, let me do research, whatnot, but yeah, my guy. Exactly. (laughs) I was an organic chemist and I was actually in it for the money because I was making six figures at, at 21 and I turned it down to go to med school. So I turned that down. I went to work as a medical scribe in the emergency room. And I bring this up because in the emergency room, I worked with 12 providers, 12, and there was five DOs, seven MDs. And I couldn't tell the difference. I didn't know what the difference was. But when I scribed for each one, what made me apply to osteopathic school was that each one of them had the same approach. Each one of them sat down on the patient's bed without a computer, sat down and just talked to them. It wasn't an exam. It was a conversation. And I loved it. And that's what made me fall in love with it. Not to say, just like Dr. Storch, that MDs don't do that. But the experience I had was like that. And I just felt like I was the person that would do that. Well, that kind of makes sense. Because if you start off, if your profession starts off in a school that immediately says, we want to connect with our patients as a first principle, then that's what you're going to emphasize as you continue into your career. These are things that MD schools do too, but it comes later on, I think, Yeah. in and, the discussion of like, like what it means to be a doctor. Yeah, because one of the things that strikes me is that some of this philosophy is taught to us, these things of like, you know, engage, make sure that you get the full picture, like what is what else is going on in their life that's influencing their health. But it's almost as an adjunct to the way that we diagnose, where like the philosophy of MD is... To me, Allison and Jenna, you can come in and tell me I'm completely wrong about this, but it's very much sort of like find where the problem is and then fix the problem. So treating it like an organ-based system of like deducing, getting smaller and smaller window, and then while also taking those other factors into account. So it's almost sort of a combined philosophy, whereas DO, from what you've said, almost seems to be a more integrated philosophy of like begin and continue with the patient as a whole, as opposed to begin with the whole and then break them down until you figure out where the the ouchie is. I think you have it spot on. And to go with that, I just want to ask you guys a question. When do you guys as MD students start seeing patients? Patients are real patients. (laughs) Even even standardized patients. Let's say that. First semester. semester. And we technically go in and see patients the first semester, but it's like, I don't know, we don't help. Yeah, th- this kind of varies between schools, but here at Iowa, we have a program called like early clinical experiences, which is even in your first semester, you get to now in your first semester, you basically learn how to introduce yourself to the patient and then get a chief complaint, which is really all you do when you enter clinical as well. But at the very least, it is like walking in with a coat on. There's someone over there who has come to your office with a medical condition. So it is at least like getting your, your feet wet, as it were. Yeah, definitely. The only reason I bring that up is because the conversational aspect of our philosophy and to bring out the diagnosis from the patient, not to just diagnose ourselves. It comes from the fact that we actually have patients probably like three to four times a a week, at least in my school. Think about it. If you're in an OMP lab, 
twice a week, six hours, you know, you have a partner, that partner is your patient for that whole three hours. We're working on one specific thing and we're not just like diagnosing him for that whole three hours. We're talking, trying to see his lifestyle. Why is, why is his pelvis up on one side and not on the other? So we have to really go in and see what they did. You can't just go in and say surgery. We want to see what the actual somatic dysfunction, if you will, is. I'm imagining a DO student or or physician walking into the exam room and taking one look at me and going, holy crap, (laughs) he's all kinds of messed up. I think somebody was going to offend somebody else. Oh, that was me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think it was everyone. (laughs) So the training is very holistic and stuff. But then um, in my, I'm going to offend so many people. In my experience with DO, like residents and attendings, I don't see any difference between like DO and MD residents. So I guess... Do you think that you guys are like super on the DO train compared to everyone else? Or do you think that it gets a little bit lost when you don't have as much time? Or do you think I have had like a really terrible sample size or I, I don't know. Jen, I think you've Where? had a great, no, I think you've had a good sample <laughs> size. I, th- I think that's, that's most of the point, you know? And, and I think again, as Amir pointed out, you know, I think you guys are spot on. So I'm a gastroenterologist. If people come into my office I'm not necessarily an osteopathic gastroenterologist. I'm a gastroenterologist. I do endoscopies. I do colonoscopies. You know, I take care of people that are bleeding, people with liver and pancreas problems. You know, again, my training post-grad is all allopathic. So there is no actual difference between my practice as a gastroenterologist, being a DO, as an MD. As you pointed out, it's more of a, a philosophical difference learning. And and I think that answers part of the question of, is there a difference between an MD and a DO? They're both complete physicians. So I I think what you're observing is your your statement is a DO is a complete physician, just like an MD, and I don't see a difference. And the answer is yes. Okay. So if I may ask, I do think that there, and I'm not saying within the circle, I'm not necessarily not, I'm just saying, In the wider culture, there does seem to be a certain amount of bias, possibly just because the DO label isn't quite as familiar to most people. So have you guys ever run across any people who it's like, like, I'm going to DO school, I'm going to be, and they're like, what is that? Is that like a fake doctor? Or have you run across those kinds of, (laughs) I'm seeing some yes and nod. (laughs) Every day. The question I go, like, I went home to Tampa and in Orlando and my friends introduced me to some friends. And their friends were like, oh, so you're going to be a doctor? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a DO. And they're like, is that a medical position? And I was like, oh. (laughs) Well, then I have to go into my little spiel. I already have an elevator speech all prepared about what a DO is. But ultimately, yes, we get that. Or at least I do. I don't know about Thorch and and Courtney. 
Yeah, I definitely receive the same kind of the same feedback as you. Actually, the thing I get asked most frequently is they confuse me with an orthopedic doctor. <laughs> so that that's probably the biggest confusion. But this goes a lot into our history. I think you hit the nail on the head. We our profession didn't emerge until mid 1800s, whereas allopathic medicine had been practiced hundreds of years prior to that. And it was just in the style of learning that we emerged, in the style of teaching that our founder A.T. Still came out with. And our profession has followed along in that path. And with that, we now make up one fourth of the medical students in the country as schools have emerged and grown. I'm very lucky to be in Michigan where we have one of the very first osteopathic medical schools here. So there are many, many DOs practicing in the state. So I think I probably get it less commonly here since my, my parents go and see a DO. Many of my family friends go and see a DO. So it's very common to practice as a DO here in Michigan. So I've been in practice now for, for 15 years as a gastroenterologist. My, my door says DO, my lab coat says DO. I get asked never, like it just never comes up. I'm a gastroenterologist, people don't even think about it. And to the point, I recently had a, a girl come in who's been a patient of mine for a few years and she was a little stressed, you know, her stomach was bothering her. It was probably stress-related, again, being a little holistic, but just being a nice person. And I asked her what was stressing her out. And she said, listen, I'm trying to get into medical school and I actually want to go into osteopathic school, but I could only apply to like three schools because I didn't have a letter from an osteopathic physician. I couldn't find one, right? And it was so funny. I'm like pointing to my jacket and I was <laughs> like, Jen, you've known me for like <laughs> years 10 years like you could have just called me i would have written you a letter and she her eyes like opened up she was like oh my god i didn't realize mm -hmm. it's funny yeah the, the med school application process is very dumb but that's a different that's a whole other conversation oh that reminds me of a question i had for you guys so when i was applying i applied to md and do schools and then was shadowing do's and i i don't know i got advice like all over the board right about what i should do and like which, I don't know, which schools I should apply to and ended up applying to both. But one thing I noticed when I was shadowing DOs is that like the thing that was most different to me when I was researching the programs was the osteopathic manipulation. And I didn't see anyone actually use it when I was shadowing anyone. So I don't know. And it, it was all primary care clinics. So I didn't know if you think that that's more of a result of the time constraints or just maybe I picked a week to shadow where it wasn't appropriate for any of the patients. And I was in high school, so I don't know what I was even seeing, but <laughs> I don't know if you can speak to um, other, the, the, how often it's used in practice. The funny thing about your, the funny thing about your statement that you were in high school and that you didn't know what you were seeing is that it sort of assumes that there was some sort of secret manipulation going on. <laughs> like they would reach out and touch the patient's shoulder and then give it a quick twist and they'd be like, okay, well, <laughs> Like, as soon as you walked out the door, they just immediately were like, ha, and you're done. <laughs> <Yeah>. Goodbye. <laughs> snuck it away. So, yeah, I think I think it just depends on the physician. You know, so, again, I'm a gastroenterologist. Once in a while, people do recognize I'm a DO, and they come in and say, oh, I wanted a holistic gastroenterologist. I appreciate that. And they asked me if I could do some manipulation. That That's not something that I integrate into my practice. You know, it's interesting. They're... they're are family practitioners and internal medicine docs that are osteopaths that practice. There are people that practice only neuromuscular medicine, which Courtney and Amir, I'm gonna I'm gonna let them speak about that a little more. But you know, it depends on the doctor. You know, just like if you 
asked a gastroenterologist if they perform ERCP, you know, a very specialized procedure. There are some gastroenterologists that do those special procedures and there's some that do not. It's just a matter whether they integrate that into their practice. And I think the good part about osteopathic school is that we all learn an appreciation for the manipulative medicine. I wouldn't call it alternative, but it, it's certainly a little different than what an MD would practice. And again, it, that does give us an appreciation for other types of alternative medicine, but we don't all practice it. So if you wanted to learn about osteopathic manipulation, which I did before I went to osteopathic school, you have to look for a doc that, that integrates it into their practice. Courtney Amir, do you have some, some comments you can make about OMM? I think just to Allison's point about time constraint, that is a big factor. I know that in the emergency room, when I scribed for three years, we, I didn't see any physician use it on a patient, but there was an instance where the chaplain was having a really bad headache and she was about to go home. And Dr. Blevins, I'll never forget him. He's one of the best physicians I know. And as a DO, he told her to sit down. It was a slower day. And he told her to sit down and he did manipulation and she was relieved of the headache in less than 15 minutes. So to speak on that, I use it on my fiance. I use it on my mother and all that stuff. But when you get to the clinic, just like Dr. Storch said, it just, it depends on the time and it depends on the physician. A GI physician is not going to really integrate it much. Not many, I shouldn't say any or none, but yeah, that's what I would say. And building on that, I think touching on Dr. Schwartz's other point, we you can actually go into osteopathic manipulative medicine as a specialty. So that's actually a whole subsector that you can practice solely in. They do osteopathic manipulative treatment as their entire practice, and many doctors refer out to them. I think as you guys noticed, when you shadow allopathic or when you're a medical student in an allopathic internal medicine office, and they have to see XYZ number patients during the day because that was on their schedule, you still are constrained by the time and you still have to perform the same treatments as a, a DO. You can't skimp on any of the other medical aspects of their visit as well. And with that, time is really the biggest issue, which is why many doctors will refer out to their practicing counterparts in osteopathic manipulative treatment when they do not have the time to do so in their own office. The crazy thing about that neuromuscular medicine specialty is that I even was researching and I saw that there's even nurse practitioners that have that specialty to go into. There are nurse practitioners that specialize in that. And that just shows that neuromuscular medicine is really growing, that nurse practitioners are doing it. And even on, a, on one of our episodes with Dr. Rodriguez, she was mentioning how she works side by side with MDs and MDs want to take some of the manipulative medicine that she knows to work on these Olympic athletes because she works for Team USA, USA Rugby and everything like that. Most recent episode, check it out. But that just shows you that what we do when we have the time, it really functions to be the best plan for the patient. There also is an alternative licensing path offered to MD, our MD counterparts to learn and become licensed in osteopathic manipulative treatment or osteopathic manipulative medicine. And that's something that is offered through the licensing board. Again, if you are not, if you're an osteopathic physician, they also recognize that if you do not use it in your, in your practice, you do not have to keep getting recertified in it anymore as well. So those are two new options that the American Osteopathic Association came out with over this past year. I want to talk more about manipulative medicine 
and what it is and what it looks like and how it works and how you learn it. Can you, can you give us some idea of all of that, Amir and Courtney? So this is actually super unique and it's kind of a mix between, I guess if you would describe it, chiropractic, physical therapy, massage therapy, but we are so much more knowledgeable in anatomy and physiology in the way that we are medical students and we're doctors. And because of that training and that knowledge, our treatment is much more focused on individual areas and these areas have somatic dysfunction is what we call them. So we find areas of tissue texture abnormalities and areas that maybe are not moving correctly and we focus our treatment on treating that specific anatomical area to improve the function and therefore alleviate pain in this aspect. And it's much more focused on the area than I would say like massage therapy or chiropractic. And we do a mixture of soft tissue and um, bony adjustments depending on, you know, what the problem is. And then Amir, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. Yeah, if you guys want a specific example, let me just do it right through the... No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) This is when being in studio would be so nice. I know. COVID. I would have brought my table and done free manipulative, (laughs) you know, everything. Just just to talk about it uh, a little bit more specifically, just to go back to that chaplain that had that headache. We do a thing called suboccipital release. And, you know, you might think of it like, okay, you're cutting that muscle. No, we're not cutting anything. We're... You know, if that person has a headache, we're not just going to throw medicine at them. There's things that we could do to alleviate that pain. We all know that sometimes when people have headaches, you know, they have a trapezius muscle that's too tight. We have some muscles that are too tight, kind of maybe constricting that blood flow to, you know, the head. That's what causes a headache. We know that. So instead of just giving medicine, we came up with ideas, not we specifically, but AT still, came up with these techniques. And we really just follow... To, for the example of the suboccipital release, the suboccipital muscle, we follow the, the striations of that muscle to release the tension just by applying some pressure for a certain amount of time for certain repetition. And what that does is kind of increase the blood flow to that area. And by increasing blood flow, we're using the body itself to treat itself, if that makes any sense. So the difference between, I mean, you, you mentioned chiropractic, Courtney, I think it was you. So the difference between the two is, number one, depth of study, depth of knowledge about anatomy. And I think number David, two. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we, ne- we never want to, you know, speak about other special other types of doctors. But, you know, the, the main difference, an osteopath is a complete physician. There's only two complete physicians in the U.S., MD and DO. So, so I would just say they're, they're different types of practitioners. Sure. They, they don't do surgery or, or prescribe medications. They don't have a medical license. Sure. I should have been clearer. What I, what I meant was the difference between, and maybe I'm still wrong, osteopathic manipulation, that specific part of being a DO. See, now I'm mad because my offensive question was going to be like, what makes you different than a chiropractor? And now you've just answered it. So ah, how dare you? I can't defend you anymore. (laughs) The question, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think you've, I think you've addressed the difference. It's depth of understanding and knowledge of anatomy. And I don't know, maybe to our our integration of soft tissue treatments. Definitely. Mm -hmm. We do not just focus on bony structures and we really integrate soft tissue focuses. We have something called myofascial release. And so we integrate that into our practice as well. So it kind of differentiates us from any other, any other similar that neuromuscular treatment. 
Are there things that, what what are the the kinds of things that OMM can help with? And what are the things that you would say that it's, you know, I can't help you in that way. I'm going to use another way. I don't practice OMM as, as I told you, but you know, I think if somebody has a tumor and they need it removed, you're probably not doing OMM. I, I, think, <laughs> I think if the patient has a diabetic foot ulcer that's infected, the primary modality is not OMM. Mm-hmm. But there's there are many things, as Courtney pointed out, osteopathic manipulative theory looks at, at blood flow, looks at lymphatic flow, and looks at the musculoskeletal system. So it's kind of addressing all of those things. So there are techniques that, for example, if the person has an infected foot, maybe you could use that techniques to help blood flow and lymphatic flow in combination with antibiotics. So that would be one example. There, we've had, you know, pulmonologists, I'm, I'm gonna go back to our podcast just because we've spoken on the podcast. It's so interesting talking to different specialists that use techniques. So we spoke to a pulmonologist and he was talking about treating someone with asthma. And his approach is if the patient has asthma, they get a steroid, an antibiotic if appropriate, all the things that that an MD counterpart would use. However, he specifically talks about rib dysfunction and the fact that sometimes because of all of the inflammation and the difficulty breathing, they get a lot of tightness in, in their ribs and the muscles going to the ribs. And he could use osteopathic manipulative therapy to help their breathing by addressing the actual rib cage and the musculature itself. And that's super interesting. Amir pointed out headaches and obviously back pain is, is a whole thing upon itself where we don't have great treatment for back pain. Even surgery obviously is not a great treatment a lot of times for back pain and manipulative therapy is, is often used for that. May I uh, interrupt for a break just for a second? No, uh, oh, no. Come on. I, 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 denied. <laughs> I want to take a break for our podcast listeners because I want to tell them that we are live streaming this recording in our Facebook group, the Shortcode Podcast Student Lounge. It's a new effort for us. We'd love for you to join us there for recordings where you can ask questions of our co-hosts and guests. So please become a member of the Shortcode Podcast Student Lounge to be part of the show and we can make it be more like more what you want it to be about. Speaking of which, Joshua has asked or has, has mentioned uh, that he's seen DAs use OMM for post-operative ileus, which I don't know what that means. Get some di- digestion going, he says. So that's uh, what what is post-operative <laughs> ileus? Yeah. So again, I can feel that one. You know, I, I have not seen it used that way. I think that's super interesting. You know, a post-operative ileus, I always call that the the caveman my caveman theory. So basically my description of a post-operative ileus is God made the body so that if one caveman stabs another caveman and all of their uh, internal organs are seeping out. Sorry for the week of heart. Turn I'm, off I'm enjoying this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love so all this. Their, you know, so God said, listen, no, this, is, <laughs> this is going to be bad. So shut down the bowel, like stop moving, just shut everything down. So the, so the body's made it. Oh. You know, the body has been as evolved or however you want to look at it, that the intestines shut down when the caveman stabs the other caveman. You know, in is... a surgical setting, your body doesn't know the difference between a caveman stabbing you and uh, Dr. Smith making an incision to take out your inflamed appendix, right? So you're still getting stabbed. And what happens is the, the bowel shuts down. You know, we don't want it to shut down. You know, the patient's appendix is out. You know, everything's great. We want them to go home. And sometimes it just takes some time for the intestines to wake up. Yeah, this is, I, 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 
okay, now I, I've experienced this. I've I've had yeah, surgery see, no, and so and yeah, been and they're and they're like, let's wait. We we want to make sure that you poop. And yeah, uh, I was that's like, it. what? We I, like that's... poop. Yeah, we like poop. Yeah. But, you know, so an example, though, an example of like a big picture approach to Ilias is there, there are some papers that talk about chewing gum. So the idea behind chewing gum is that, you know, we know that the vagus nerve, you know, there are nerves that stimulate the GI tract to move. So there are some fun papers that, you know, the bottom line for Ilias is we say time and walk around, blah, blah, blah. That's usually that's standard therapy. But again, there are some nice papers on chewing gum to increase the thought being that that's going to kind of trick the the nerves going down to the bowel to say, look, there's food coming down. Let's kickstart things and get them going. And I could see, again, I'm not versed in manipulative therapy for that, but I certainly can see how using nerve impulses to the GI tract might decrease the time of an intestinal ileus. That certainly would make logical sense. If you don't mind, I can jump in and, and actually talk a little bit about what the theory behind that one is. For OMT, at least it, what it is, is it can modify autonomics. So our digestive system is moderated by our automatic nerves. It's digesting, doing its thing without our knowledge. And when that stops, we have something called the celiac ganglion that is like right, uh, right above our belly button. And so the, OM, the, the osteopathic manipulative treatment for this is to stimulate that celiac ganglion in, hoping, in hopes of getting the part of the digestive system that stopped moving, moving again. I think the vagus nerve is sort of a fantastic thing. It does so much and it doesn't surprise me at all to know that it's connected to various things that can happen and that you can feel in the body and and this discussion of the what are they called the the the, the second central nervous system in the gut and all this kind of stuff. It's just mm-hmm. sort of fascinating to me. I also I want to shout out to the explanation of post-op Ilias as like a caveman survival response, just because I feel like we as a medical community don't talk enough about the fact that surgery is basically a very controlled graphic disembowelment. It's like <laughs> at the end of the day, it's like it's not a fun thing for your body to go through. And we talk about it so routinely. It's like, oh yeah, I had my out. I just like was disemboweled there for a bit. It's fine. <laughs> David, I, I had a couple of things from that episode that you did on. I think we're doing a great job. Again, I really appreciate your time and interest. Some of, can I bring up some of the other things that were mentioned on the podcast that I think the episode from August that I think deserves some time? Please do. So one of the questions which I am going to pitch to Amir and Courtney was about boards. So, you know, there are two sets of boards. I'm just going to kind of define there are two sets of boards. There is the USMLE, which is classically the the MD boards. And then there's a test called the Comlex, which is the classic DO boards. Both of those allow licensure, you know, physician, again, for a complete physician in all 50 states. Interestingly, we've had the heads of both boards 
the MD boards and the DO boards on our podcast. The MD boards ahead of the DO boards is actually a DO also, which is just cool. But Amir and Courtney, can you comment on, on the two sets of boards and what you think about the point that was made that DOs, again, in that little clip that you played at the beginning, need to do a little more work, take a few more tests and and take both boards. Yeah, I can definitely talk on that. As a third year, I've already passed the step where I took the first step of boards. We do take the Comlex and that's divided into three levels. The Comlex level one is kind of synonymous with USMLA step one and so on and so forth. So the difference between the two exams Step one is about 270 questions, I think seven and a half hours long. The Comlex level one is longer, more expensive, and it's also 30% more questions than the step one. So it's about 400 questions in one sitting, and we get nine hours to do that. And for those that do opt to take the exam, and I do mean opt because not all DOs take it, we take them about traditionally one week apart. So we do double dose on the board exam. But when it comes to the question about all DOs, do all DOs take the step? They really don't because it really depends on what specialty you're going into and what program you're applying to. Just like that person said in the, that episode, it, it really depends. And, you know, one of our, one of our episodes with Dr. Nelson, that's the program director. He himself as a DO did not take simile. He matched emergency medicine and to look at students, he doesn't look for step one when he looks at osteopathic students. Other than that, Courtney, do you have any experience as you're prepping for Comlex Level 1 and Step 1? Yeah, so I, I'm actually prepping to take both of them right now, but I think Amir really hit the nail on the head with this one. It, and it is absolutely individualized to the student because there are many programs throughout the country that do accept Comlex just as an equivalent to our allopathic step licensing board system. And so it really depends on the program that you are applying to. And you know, there when you are applying to maybe a competitive specialty, MD or DO student, you have to do whatever it takes to make you competitive. And sometimes that may require taking the USMLE series just because it's part of a competitive program or a competitive specialty. And that's the same thing across the board. You got to do whatever it takes to make yourself competitive. But there are many programs that don't require both. And it is just individualized to each student. And we have many academic advisors that help us determine the best decision for our round. And so going into DO school, you absolutely don't have to feel like you have to take both to be a successful physician. I will uh, note that if, Allison and Jenna are both doing dedicated right now. Yes, I was watching during that whole question. I was just having a lot of entertainment from just watching the fear and anxiety grow in their eyes as this they is, think about their oh, I, died. I, I died a little bit when you said you take them a week apart. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I took them a week apart and it was rough. Oh, wow. my gosh. Yeah, I just got the email from. Apart. Oh, my <laughs> like, gosh, Courtney, I'm so sorry. <laughs> performance anxiety <laughs> as we were talking about it. Palpitations. Oh, my gosh. Sweaty palms. <laughs> but, just going blank. On the com- but just to talk on the comics and USMLE, I took both of them a week apart, and my scores pretty much correlated with each other percentile-wise. So, you know, testing the competency of a DO with both exams, you know, it's, it's there, but should it be there? I don't think so. Doesn't but, sound like it. Know. Yeah. Well, step one is apparently going pass fail 
Yep. Um, not for us. Level one is not, not for them yet. Tom. Oh, Comlex level one is going pass fail two. Starting 2022. Yes. Okay. So making the same similar moves. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how that changes things, but that Which will good. certainly be interesting to, to, to watch. Well, one of the things that DO students have to think about strategically is that if they want to go to a very competitive program, they might, this might, this step for people after 2022, it might force them to take step two, mm-hmm. to have a numerical score to become competitive, which is even more straining mm-hmm. on osteopathic students, because not only do you have to think about taking two exams, which, you know, you guys are terrified of USMLE. Imagine being terrified of USMLE and Comlex, you know, back to back, that's double the amount of exams. Mm-hmm. We also have to think about the price of the exam. Yeah. And and the travel. And during this COVID time, my test, you guys are going to freak, was pushed back even the night before. Oh. And it was canceled. Imagine ah. the stress there. Yeah, there was more fear in my eyes. But it that just, you know, kind of talks to the point of why do we need two exams? We don't need that. But will they stop making you take two exams if they can get double the money? Yeah, we, we interviewed, you know, we actually recently interviewed the the president of the MBOME and, you know, that we have, there is the osteopathic test is, is for DOs and I think designed for DOs. And, you know, we spoke to him at length. If, if you want a discussion, I think I would leave that discussion for our podcast. If you're interested in the USMLE and MBOME, we have a, a great interview with Dr. Gimple, who's a, pre- I don't know if this is even interesting to you because you're obviously not sitting for the Comlex, but he has, a, we have a, a full hour, Dr. Gimple, describing the the importance of the MBOME for osteopathic education. I, I think anyone interested in going to osteopathic school that has questions should listen to that episode. Yeah, D- definitely to any of our listeners who are considering going DO, go listen to that too, because clearly like we're MD students. We don't so know we what we're talking about. Yeah, we know all of this from hearsay, so we don't get awesome guests like this every week. So yeah, go listen to people uh, who know what they're talking about. Thank <laughs> you for the awesome. We appreciate the awesome. I can I want to I want to talk a little bit. David, do you mind if I just uh, of course go not. With one more one more issue that was brought up is is the bias issue. So I want to come full circle to you know the main question that was asked by your listener and i haven't answered it and i don't think my students have have really answered it so the question is is there bias again i'm going to take out the neurosurgery the orthopedics we're going to pretend you didn't look at the medscape list and you really just want to know like listen i go to med school you know i love the osteopathic philosophy i'm thinking about family practice but what happens if i fall in love with something really competitive and then i'm told i can't do it right that's the question. Right. And I think the best way for me to answer it is with a personal story. So, and, and I like this, I like stories. I'll, I'm going to treat you for a sec. So when I was a first year fellow, so I did my, again, I've given you my resume already. I, I went to the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine. I went to North Shore University Hospital. It's a, it's a big hospital system. It's now Northwell on Long Island. I was chief resident, so in internal medicine, they choose a few residents to run the residency program, and and I was very fortunate and blessed that they select me to to help run the program and be chief for a year. After my chief year, I was accepted to University of Miami, which the weather is horrible, the scenery is terrible, the people are really ugly, but other than that, (laughs) just kidding. Miami is like the best place in the world to live, and it's one of the best you know, Jackson Memorial and University of Miami for GI is one of the best GI programs in the country. And again, I was blessed to be there. 
So when I was a first year fellow, I was so happy to be there. It was very early in my fellowship. You know, maybe maybe six months into my fellowship, I got called to see a patient that was bleeding at the VA. And I went to go take care of the bleeder. Again, it was a first year. And, and basically, you set it up, and then your senior and attending come, and, and we do the case together. So I went up to the bedside to set up the, the equipment. And there was a young physician there, a young female physician, crying. And, and I stopped, and I, I, you know, obviously, this patient was bleeding. She was getting blood transfusion. They were okay. But I took a minute just to say, listen, you know, and it was 10 o'clock at night. Why, why are you crying? You know, she's really upset. And she was exp- started to explain to me that she wanted to be a gastroenterologist. She had applied for GI fellowship, and, and she hadn't gotten a position. And she told me, she continued to tell me that, that she went to Harvard for undergraduate. She went, she did her, she was doing her residency at University of Miami, which is a very prestigious program. And her parents, this is a true story, her parents were both gastroenterologists at a very prestigious institution in Manhattan. And how could she not have gotten a program? And, and I stopped and, and I told her, I said, listen, GI is very competitive. And I started giving her a pep talk about how if you work hard and you do research and don't give up on your dream and all, you know, all these things that, that I would give to any of my students now. And, and then as I was giving her this, this pep talk, she stopped crying and she was staring at my ID badge, which was quite odd. And I stopped at some point, I realized she wasn't crying anymore. I said, are you okay? And she said, you're a DO. And I said, yes. Yeah, so forget about any of the insulting things that you thought you were saying before. She said, you're a DO. She said, how did you get a GI fellowship here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so I, think, I think that's just the epitome of, of bias, you know, that, that some people have this idea that DOs can't do things. But ultimately, how did I get the position? I did the position. I got the position because... And again, maybe this is being a little egotistical, but I'm a very hard worker. I did well on my tests. I took care of my fellow residents who was selected as chief medical resident. I did bench work in Crohn's disease. I looked into the genetics of Crohn's disease. I did clinical research and I wanted to be a gastroenterologist. That's what I wanted to do. And I put my heart and soul into it. And again, I was blessed at a position at University of Miami. So, you know, I think that Again, I tell that story because there are biases, but if you work hard, you know, if you went, again, if you, her, her story, you go to Harvard Medical School and you go to University of Miami, you still have to go above and beyond to get a competitive fellowship. You're not doing that and walking into neurosurgery or orthopedics. So at times, can it be harder? Yes, it's possible if there's a bias, but ultimately, no matter where you go, those positions are gonna take blood, sweat, tears and sacrifice. I think that 2020 is the year that the match officially welcomed DO students alongside their MD counterparts. Leading up to that, how has that change greeted by you and your your colleagues and, and your classmates? So the match since 2020, that's when the ACGME had a merger. We've been participating in that match for I don't know how long but we have to apply separately. We had our separate match, but we could apply to both matches if we wanted to. Yeah. But 
that makes us really happy just because we don't have to go through the double process, just like the double exam. You know, there's less work and less money off of us as students. It's less stress. You know, how can we perform at our best when we're worried double, doubly on everything else, you know? But to speak on that point, why we're happy is because it's opening a lot more doors for DOs. The NRMP match data has shown for the first time DOs as our own separate category. Before that, we were actually filtered out as international medical students. So when program directors actually looked at us or looked at applications as a whole, they could automatically filter international medical graduates. And we were part of that category. Now, since this past year in 2020, we're not. So that on top of the merger has opened so many doors and the, inter the match data of 2020 shows that DOs are acquiring positions in these top specialties, just like MD students. And that shows in the match data. When I was looking at it last night, looking at emergency medicine, family medicine, even anesthesia, which is really hard to get into, the number, the applicant to acceptance ratio between MD and DO applicants is roughly equal. Say 1,000 MD students apply, 800 got accepted for a DO. These are just random numbers. I saw that like 300 applied maybe, and then 200 got in. So that's roughly the, the same percentage. You know, so that just means that we're looked at more highly than in the past. And this merger and all the doors that have opened because of that have helped us do that. One of the other, to, to piggyback onto what Amir was saying, I, I, I fully agree with everything he said. And I think, you know, just advice, like, so if you're a pre-med, you know, obviously you guys are, are talking to pre-meds, we're talking to pre-meds. You know, one of the things that came up in the August episode is maybe call a specific program and ask them if, you know, there's any DOs in the program. So, you know, I would probably take a flipped approach and I would say, number one, if you want to learn more about DOs in a specialty, again, I'm going to talk about our podcast again. We're, we're really trying to get a lot of osteopathic perspective and interview as many doctors as we can. And I think the best way to learn about osteopathic medicine is to listen to DOs experiences, which is what we're doing. And number two, I would call the schools, you know, I would each school has a list, the MD schools, I'm sure Iowa has a list of where the residents are or where the medical students are going into residency the first year. Most of them, I believe Courtney was mentioning last night, are, are published online. So, I mean, you can either find them or call the school and get that information. And I think if you have a question about, you know, can a DO that goes to Alabama go into neurosurgery, maybe you want to talk to the school and see if anybody from that school has done it in the past. Yeah, Always. absolutely. And there's the program normally has it on their website as well. You go, you see the pictures of all the residents right on the website. And there were many programs over the past, you know, from 2019 onwards that took their first DOs now. You know, just right here in Michigan, I saw the first DOs appear um, in Henry our local Detroit hospitals ER program. So it's definitely moved change and it's really easy to see just by looking at the website, whether or not they've accepted a DO and what school they came from. Well, on that note then, that's our show. Dr. Storch, Amir, Courtney, thank you for visiting with us today to help us learn more about your world. Thank, thank you guys for having us. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be on the podcast. We love it. We've been watching, listening for, for a long time. You guys are doing a great job. So where do they find you? Where do listeners find you on the internet? 
So we have three different social media platforms currently. On Facebook, it's Do or Do Not Podcast. Instagram, also Do or Not Do Not Podcast. And Twitter is at Do or Do Not Pod. So you can find us on all three platforms. Well, all right. Please go take a listen. Miranda, Allison, Jenna, thanks for being here, too for having us having no us. problem and what kind of dingus would i be if i didn't thank you short coats for making us a part of your week if you're new here and you like what you heard today subscribe to our show wherever fine podcasts are available i remind you that your questions are vital to the show because they mean it can be what you want it to be about send them comments questions anger to the short coats at gmail.com you can leave a message at 347 short ct we'll talk about it on the show while your podcast app is open we hope you'll be the kind of listener that we're always grateful for give us some stars and a review to let us know if we're doing this podcast thing right the show is made possible by a generous donation by carver college of medicine student government and ongoing support from the writing and humanities program our editor this week is aj chowdhury marketing support by alex belzer our music is by dr fox and catmosphere talk to you in one week